would, uh, grab a copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, Matthew 19, 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some available there in front of you in the pew, and you can find that on page 824. Matthew 19, 13. Uh, A common theme in Matthew is the kingdom of heaven, okay? Kingdom not in the sense of realm, but kingdom in the sense of rule. Uh, You can can see the outworking of Jesus' heavenly rule uh, in his people on earth. But when Jesus' rule appears, uh, it's often counterintuitive. It's it's upside down from the way we assume life is supposed to work. Not the rich and confident. It's the poor in spirit who get in. Not the movers and shakers. It's the meek who inherit the earth. Not the righteous, but sinners who are called. Not by taking lives, but by sacrificing your own. The victory comes. To save your life, you must lose it. Greatness means becoming a servant. First means becoming a slave. For many, the Advent season begins today, a time that recalls this upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom. God the Son came first, not with royal fanfare. Instead, He lies in a manger. The Creator becomes the child. Well, in today's passage, Jesus will again emphasize how his kingdom is upside down from the way we often think. The weak and helpless get the kingdom while the rich and powerful walk away. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Even disciples need reminders about this. So let's read it together, starting in verse 13. He says, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Our passage begins with the humility of the kingdom. The humility of the kingdom. Some children were brought to Jesus. The ESV calls them little children. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 15, mentions uh, when he's, he's uh, recounting this, these same events, mentions babies and infants. The lowest, in other words, the, the neediest, the, the weak and helpless. Uh, people want Jesus to, to lay his hands on them and pray. And in Scripture, when someone lays their hands on another for prayer, it, visualize, it visualizes setting them apart for a special blessing, whether that's for uh, healing or receiving the, the Spirit or commissioning them. The, the people want Jesus to set these children apart for a special blessing. The disciples, however, are bothered by this. Now, earlier in chapter 18, if you just flip over one page, chapter 18, verse 1 to 5, the disciples had asked Jesus... Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, calling to him a child, puts the child in the midst of them and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What was Jesus' point back there? Well, the kingdom is not about who ranks the highest. It's it's about taking the path of lowliness like we see in this child. It's, It's about choosing a path that says, I'm not the strong one. I'm helpless. I'm needy. I'm wholly reliant on Jesus like a child. And yet here, the disciples push children away. How quickly they have forgotten Jesus' words. 
Still, Jesus patiently teaches them, right? In verse 14, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Same language appeared in chapter 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child, meaning the one who became like a child, so also here, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is for those like these children. When Mark tells the same story, he records Jesus adding this in in chapter 10, verse 15 of his gospel. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The kingdom belongs to those who who humble themselves and become like children. It's for those who, who come like helpless babes to rest in the arms of Jesus. Uh, In fact, when Mark gives the same account, it talks about Jesus taking the children in his arms when he lays his hands upon them and prays. What a beautiful picture of our Lord, the one who's gentle and lowly in heart. He's not above spending time with with children. By by taking them in his arms and and blessing them, he displays the, the sort of mission that he's on. He comes for the lowly ones in society. He comes for those who aren't viewed as powerful and important. He comes for the weak and the helpless. How do you view yourself in relation to Jesus? Have you come to him like a child? Do you recognize how needy you truly are for his blessing? When you see others who are weak, uh, helpless, needy, does does your heart go out to them with with compassion or, or do you, like the disciples, push them away? Jesus welcomes the lowest into his arms. We must remember this and follow our Savior in welcoming the lowest. The kingdom belongs to all who see their need and come to Jesus like children. The last are made first in Jesus' kingdom. It's upside down from the way we often think. And that point becomes even clearer with Jesus' next encounter. But it's here we also find the demand of the kingdom. The demand of the kingdom. Sometimes it's by way of contrast that we see things more clearly. Friday morning, I snapped a picture of a tree in our backyard. The the leaves were just this bright yellow. But they didn't stand out in the picture uh, that I took on my phone until I adjusted the contrast. Right? Then, Then the brightness stood out. They really glowed. They looked more like what I was seeing in person. Well, the same happens here when we contrast this story uh, with these, these needy children. We contrast that with this confident young man. So Matthew's broader purpose here in these two accounts is, is to contrast these, these two accounts to reveal how the kingdom really is upside down to the way we often think. In verse 16, a man approaches Jesus, but notice the disciples don't stop him. 
They stop the children, the helpless ones, but they don't stop this guy. Why might that be? Well, if we, if we looked at him through worldly eyes, I mean, how would others have seen this man? Right? I mean, after all, he's in his prime. Verse 20 says he's young. Though we know from Luke 18, he's old enough to be a ruler. He's a young ruler. Uh, he's also wealthy, verse 22 says. He's religious, moral. Sounds like a good Bible Belt guy. Viewing things from the world's perspective, he seems like a perfect fit. But not so fast. This man is confused about true goodness. In verse 16, he asks, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. He's getting the man to to rethink goodness. This man must be careful, lest he think that by his own doing he can obtain the goodness God requires. If anyone is to assess their eternal state rightly, it must begin with a vision of God's goodness. Only God is good in an absolute sense, and before him, who can really measure up? Besides Jesus. Is that at the heart of this man's question? Is he seeing goodness next to God? The man is also confident in his law-keeping. So he's confused about true goodness. He's also confident in his law-keeping. Jesus draws this out as he next rehearses the law. Verse 17. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. It's striking, isn't it? He doesn't say, believe in me. If you would enter life, believe in me. He says, keep the commandments. Now, he's going somewhere with this. Jesus isn't teaching here a salvation by works. He's alluding to several places in the law covenant itself that promises life to those who keep the commandments. Only problem, nobody can when they're enslaved to sin. This man thinks he can. Which ones? Which ones, Jesus? He starts listing them. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So that's five of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Jesus finishes with, You shall love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19. Now we know from Romans 13 that all the commandments are summed up with this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Right, and that's where Jesus closes things out. Jesus is is getting this man to, to consider something deeper than the mere letter of the law. Do you think you're good because you don't murder people? Do you think you're good just because you don't sleep around? Or is your heart set on fulfilling the law in neighbor love? Amazingly, the young man says, all these I have kept. 
But as Jesus continues, we also see that this man has some incompatible allegiances. And these incompatible allegiances prove he's not all he thinks he is. In verse 20, he wants to know what he still lacks, and so Jesus responds, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man hears this, he walks away sorrowful, it says, for he had great possessions. So all along, he's been, outward, he's been obeying the, the outward stipulations of the law. But when it comes to parting with his riches, suddenly we discern his heart. Right? His allegiance isn't to God. It's to money. The man illustrates what Jesus said earlier in the gospel. Chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters... For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This man is confident in his law-keeping, but Jesus uncovers that he can't even keep the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. His wealth is his God. His possessions enslave him. Even when God is telling him to part with it, he walks away. Also notice what Jesus wants him to do with the money. Give to the poor. Might have something to do with that bit he said earlier about loving your neighbor. But he can't do it. He's too enslaved to his riches. Did you also notice that the man has no assurance of eternal life? What good must I do to have eternal life? What do I still lack? Come on, give me something. You see, when when you're confused about true goodness, and when you're confident in your own law-keeping, and when you have an allegiance that's incompatible with an allegiance to God, you will always lack assurance of eternal life. Your soul will never find rest when those things are true of you. Do you lack assurance of eternal life? Are you trusting in some good that you can do to to solve that? You're not able. Your own goodness will never measure up. All these I have kept, the man says, and yet no assurance. Assurance of eternal life comes from only one place, and that is a relationship with Jesus who came to fulfill the law. In verse 21, that's what Jesus is calling this man to, himself. Look look at it. If you would be perfect, that it is whole, complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Come follow me. The point is what Jesus himself embodies. He embodies the fulfillment of the law. Chapter 5, verse 17. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The law was pointing to Jesus and the life he would bring to his followers in the kingdom. 
Jesus is calling this man to give up his earthly treasures that he might gain the greater treasure of having a relationship with Jesus himself. You see, Jesus is the only man who's wholly good. Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Jesus came to fulfill the law in every way that we broke it. The rest of Matthew's gospel tells us how how he gave his own life on the cross to forgive our sins and then to establish a new covenant. And it's within that new covenant relationship that we then gain also not just the forgiveness of our sins, but his righteousness. And now, hidden in Christ's righteousness, we have all the assurance of eternal life with God. Our confidence rests no longer in our good deeds, but in all that all the good that Christ is. And that good news is what sets people free from any allegiance that that competes with an allegiance to God. That good news is what motivates our generosity. The kingdom ethic doesn't revolve around what you haven't done against your neighbor. Because of the generosity that God shows us in Christ... The heart overflows with generosity toward your neighbor, like selling what you have and give to the poor. That's how a relationship with Jesus transforms you. Since he's the greatest treasure, your stuff no longer enslaves you. You have all you need in him, and so you follow him in everything he asks of you. Even when he says, go sell your stuff and give it to the poor. However, this man walks away from such a relationship with Jesus. He walks away from the greatest treasure. For the disciples, it wasn't the helpless children, but the rich young religious man who was the prime candidate for Jesus' kingdom. But upside down to their thinking, they watched Jesus bless the helpless and the weak and watched the rich and confident walk away. And so Jesus turns this moment into another lesson for the disciples. Verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now some will try to soften this by saying the eye of a needle is like this little gate in the ancient world and the camel is kind of hard to get through but not impossible to kind of get on the disease. That's all baloney. There's no evidence for that. Jesus really means largest land animal in their region going through the smallest hand instrument. The point is the impossibility. That's why the disciples ask, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible. Nobody can save themselves. It's impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible. If anyone is saved, it's by God's initiative, God's doing. Man is incapable of saving himself. God must change the heart so that it's able to turn away from something like the love of money and follow Jesus instead. What this man needs is a heart like a child. 
A heart that recognizes its helpless state and knows that the only way into the kingdom is into Jesus' arms. So what about you? Are you leaning on your own merit or your own success or your own morality to win God's favor or to keep God's favor? The kingdom is a matter of trust and dependence on Jesus' merit, not on your merit. So rest yourself in Jesus. Ask God for such a heart that depends not on yourself, but on Jesus. All things are possible with God. That's why any of us are here today. Because of God. It's also helpful to note here that Jesus has offered the kingdom both to the helpless and to the rich young man. Uh, Mark's gospel even adds that he loved the rich young man. The point of these sections taken together isn't to say, love the childlike needy ones and ignore the rich and powerful. But it does emphasize the human tendency for us to be more accepting to the rich and powerful than of those whom society sees as lesser. And such partiality is not welcome in Jesus' kingdom. That's what he's showing the disciples. The kingdom is upside down from what we often think. And that must inform the way we respond to others. But something else we learn in this encounter is that it alerts us to the dangers of wealth, doesn't it? I mean, on its own, wealth isn't bad. It's a gift from the Lord. It can be used for good, like like supporting uh, a family or meeting needs or building a city or blessing someone. At the same time, Jesus warns it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And that should sober us wealthy Americans. Uh, William Lane says this, How easy it is to become so attached to wealth that even an earnest man forgets what is infinitely more important. The peculiar danger confronting the rich lies in the false sense of security which wealth creates, and in the temptation to trust in material resources and personal power when what is demanded by the law and the gospel is a wholehearted reliance upon God. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, There is not a vice which more effectually contracts and deadens the feelings which more completely makes a man's affections center in himself and excludes all others from partaking in them than the desire of accumulating possessions. So how are you viewing your possessions? Are there possessions that you have that have such a hold on you that it keeps you from obeying Jesus or from serving his people? When you assess your possessions, how are they serving the kingdom of heaven? How are they being used to love your neighbor? 
How do you use your home? What do you spend your time dreaming about? I think we all should, would do well to remember the rich young man. He did a lot of good, but only as a cover for his false god. How you relate to your possessions reveals what god you truly worship. The far better path is to lay up treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus calls this man to, to lay up treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus calls all of us to back in chapter 6. Remember what he said there? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You ever get frustrated over something breaking in your home? That's just a little reminder from God not to place your hopes here. You ever get maybe valuable possession that you have and someone you let someone borrow it and it's broken. Not the same when you get it back. Just a little reminder from God. Things here don't last forever. Lay up treasures in heaven instead. Or if thieves broke in and break in and steal, right? Like they did my Chevy pickup when I was 18. Picked the lock and took all my money that I made that summer. Because I hadn't deposited it yet. Just a little reminder. Don't set your hopes here in the things of earth. Make your investments in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Take all that you own and put it in the service of Jesus' kingdom starting at your home with your family and then working out to the church and then to the world. Those decisions might cost you everything. But it will mean giving up things. It it might even mean giving up things that you wanted to have but can no longer have. But every sacrifice for Jesus' kingdom will prove in the end to be no sacrifice at all. And that brings us to the final part of our passage. The reward of the kingdom. The reward of the kingdom. Jesus called the rich young man to sell everything, give to the poor, and then come follow him. The man walks away. Peter, on the other hand, he represents the disciples. He says, look, we've, we've left everything and followed you. In other words, we, we didn't respond like that guy. We gave it all up. What then will we have? Now, it's hard to know Peter's heart here. Right? Is he being smug? I see that. Look at us, Jesus. We're not like him. Maybe. Or is there a level of self-pity? We've sacrificed so much for you. What are we going to get out of the deal? 
maybe? Or is it just an honest question, like an expressed need for comfort in their obedience? It's hard to know. Regardless, Jesus' answer answers all three of those things. Doesn't it? If, if there was need for comfort, Jesus' promise should comfort their hearts. He first says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, big deal, right? You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so when you leave everything and follow Jesus, you look really insignificant to the world, right? You don't win popularity contests. But in the end, Jesus is promising the 12 this final vindication. They will rule with him. Now, some places in the New Testament speak of all the saints ruling with Jesus, like 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 2. But this promise seems unique to the 12, you who have followed me, in contrast to the everyone of verse 29. These 12 represent the true Israel who will stand in judgment over the false Israel. Now, where that plays out in history is less clear from this passage alone, and I don't think I've got a handle on it to say anything more than that. So let's go to the next promise. He, he broadens it to all the disciples. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Of course, we learned earlier in the gospel, right, that when you follow Jesus, some family members might say, I'm out of this relationship because I don't want to follow Jesus with you. Right? Jesus says that might happen, but you will gain hundreds more in the kingdom. A lot of them are sitting right here in this room, right? Just look around. These are some of your fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Or maybe following Jesus means you sacrifice lands, houses, possessions. You, know, you sell them to, to maybe meet the needs of others, or you lose them because the government says, we don't like what you're doing with Jesus, so we're taking it away. Right? So Jesus promises that everyone who gives up these things for his namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So that's their comfort. If there was any self-pity in their question, Jesus answers that too, doesn't he? I mean, when you compare what the disciples give up in this world to what they gain in the kingdom, there's no comparison. R.T. France writes, the life of heaven is far more than enough to compensate for any earthly loss. So you will hear some missionaries who come back off the field after years of, of hardship and toil, and they will say things like, we never made a sacrifice. What? They can say that because of Jesus' promise right here. The, the sacrifice was an investment in the kingdom that yields a hundredfold more than everything that they gave up. So there's no room for this, woe is me, look at all that I gave up. Jesus' reward is a hundredfold guaranteed return on your investment. The focus of the kingdom isn't what you're giving up, but what you gain in Christ. And then lastly, if there was any smug attitude... Behind their question, surely the larger picture here addresses that as well. 
right? The rich young man wants eternal life, but he forfeited it to keep his earthly possessions. The disciples leave behind earthly possessions and gain the promise of eternal life. So the one on top who thought he had everything, he ends up with nothing. And the ones who gave up everything to go low with Jesus, they end up with everything. So it's upside down from the way our culture teaches us to think. Our culture wants you to focus on what you can gain here and now. Climb to the top now. Jesus says, give up your possessions now to gain something greater later. And so if there was a smug attitude, surely Peter could step back and see that, that, that such an attitude has no place in the kingdom of God. That's what Matthew wants us to see anyway. Those who think they're something end up with nothing. And those who know they're nothing without Jesus, well, they end up with everything in the kingdom. And then if there was still any doubt in Peter's mind, Jesus addresses it again head on in verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So yeah, all these rewards are coming, but you better keep this in mind, Peter. Many who are first will be last and the last first. In other words, yes, these promises will be true of you and those who follow me, but check your attitude. The good things you're doing for me, don't let those replace me. Don't let those things puff you up and make you think you're superior. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter needs to remember the children from earlier. And that's what we need to remember too. Yes, we need assurance that our sacrifices are not in vain and, 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 and they're not. Jesus will make good on your investment a hundredfold. We also need our self-pity checked and see all that we gain in Christ is far more than we will ever give up. But we also need to remember the upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom. He came for the weak and helpless. And we must come to him as weak and helpless. Dependent children. Not by our own status, merit, and accomplishments. Not by our own success, power, or possessions. We enter the kingdom on the merits of Jesus alone. And all that he is for us in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. Uh, We thank you for his merit, for his righteousness. It is so much better than ours. Uh, It is perfect. I pray that if anybody in here is lacking assurance of eternal life, that you would work in their hearts today to help them rest in the arms of Jesus, rest in all that he's accomplished for them and that they would know eternal life in him. For all of us, help us to become like children, to depend ourselves wholly upon your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.